0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to a very exciting episode joining the podcast is regular guest, Judge Alice Hill. Alice is the David Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. Alice returns to discuss a variety of adaptation topics. We dig into the recent cataclysmic flooding that occurred in Pakistan and what that might mean for national security. We also discuss Puerto Rico and Hurricane Irma and the challenges of getting on-the-ground resilience funding on the island. Alan and I discuss the challenges of bureaucracies to support adaptation planning and funding and why a national adaptation plan would be so useful as we ramp up resilient spending. Alice also shares the lack of basic climate understanding among corporate leaders and how that inhibits making resilience a priority in the private sector. Always great to catch up with Alice Hill. Okay, upcoming episodes. Next up is a conversation with Dr. Carolyn Kuski of the Environmental Defense Fund, where we talk about her new book, Understanding Risk Insurance. I assure you, It's more exciting than that title suggests and full of useful information. I'm also going to the National Adaptation Forum in Baltimore, and I'll be interviewing young adaptation professionals and why they decided to pursue this career path. I'm also working on an episode with World Wildlife Fund and how mangroves are a key nature-based solution to adaptation. I'll be headed to Meridia, Mexico for those interviews. And I'm also talking with Dr. Kelly Heriad of Liberty Mutual about climate modeling and what it means for the insurance industry. In light of the hurricane damage we've seen in the past few months, this is an increasingly important conversation. I've got an exciting opportunity for you. Join me and my new partner, Patel for the next annual Innovations in Climate Resilience Conference, or ICR23. The theme is Bold Leaps in Action. The conference will take place on March 28th to March 30th, 2023 in Columbus, Ohio. ICR 23 is gathering innovators across industry, academia, and government to share and inspire science and technology and focus on solutions that can make an impact in climate adaptation and resilience. Patel is taking a lead in the resilience space and they want you along for the ride. As an emerging sector, we're still not seeing participation from all sectors in many of our meetings. This conference has a track record of bringing in government, nonprofit, academia, and the corporate sector. Very few conferences have success bringing in the private sector, and this one does industry will play an increasingly important role in the years ahead with adaptation guys. This is a rare opportunity for all relevant players to come together. The call for abstracts is now open. Here's your chance to share your important work at an important and emerging conference venue. ICR 23. Some of the program themes include climate risk and national security, resilient built infrastructure, innovative climate solutions for ecosystem restoration, and there are more themes for you to choose from. So share your innovative work during the curated technical program featuring keynotes platform talks breakout sessions and two evening poster presentations join the conference where leaders and creators are sharing their groundbreaking ideas to impact climate resilience if you aren't interested in presenting i encourage you to attend and connect with your peers think about all the partnerships and projects that are created during coffee and lunch breaks at these conferences don't forget submit your abstract today and help change the world visit patel.org forward slash adapt to learn more That's patel.org forward slash adapt. Learn more links are in my show notes support for America depths comes from Patel where science and technology are applied to help create a safer, healthier, more secure world. Patel, it can be done. Okay. Let's join judge Alice Hill and dig into some of the most important adaptation issues of the day. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I'm talking with Judge Alice Hill. Alice is the David Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. Hi, Alice. Welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hello, Doug. It's so good to be back with you.
0: I know you've been on quite a few times. We've had conversations on different platforms, and it's something I really look forward to doing. But for those new listeners out there, could you Just give a bit more background, a little bit of your history, but then the work that you're doing there and, yeah, just some of the projects that you're working on.
1: Sure. Well, I came to Climate Change and Climate Adaptation and Resilience in 2009. I previously served as a judge in Los Angeles County, handling everything from murder to medical malpractice. And then my phone rang. On the other end was Janet Napolitano, whom President Obama had asked to become the Secretary of Homeland Security. I had gone to law school with Janet Napolitano, and she asked me, do you want to come to Washington? Eventually, I did come to Washington. I became her senior counselor in In 2009, President Obama issued an executive order that required all agencies to engage in adaptation planning. That task fell to me. And then from DHS, after I helped craft, led the task force that created the first adaptation plan for the Department of Homeland Security and its wide mission set, I moved to the White House where I became senior director for resilience policy on the National Security Council staff, as well as Special Assistant to President Obama, and then I have worked at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, and now I'm at the Council on Foreign Relations, where I've written two books about climate resilience and policy levers that could keep us all safer going forward.
0: Yes, Alice. Again, it's a treat having you on. I remember the first time we met, I went to the Hoover Institute and we actually got to do an interview in public. And I always tell this story just going in. You're probably one of the most intimidating people that I've encountered and I've interviewed because you just have this air and you've obviously one of the most friendly people you can meet. But I just I look back fondly on that and I look back fondly on some of the questions that I asked you and you weren't having any part of it. The judge in you, the lawyer in you, you were just kind of running circles around me. And I tell that story all the time because I <laughs> was it was like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> Judge Alice Hill, and you you handed me if I'm handed me my ass on one occasion, really, and I'm just like, oh, I just had this coming, so it was great. It's always been a fond memory.
1: For me. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. My kids do accuse me of having a judge voice sometimes, so I I don't know, <laughs> oh, <laughs> but uh, I've appreciated and uh, cherished our friendship over the years. So I'm glad you forgave me for that first introduction.
0: Oh, it was not forgive, it was more me, me just being impressed. I felt like a teenager, was like, hello there, and it was just it, it was just a fun experience. All right, let's jump into some content here. A lot of things have happened. Let's see if I can tee you up here. You can acknowledge like something really big happened this summer. Can you tell us what that was?
1: Well, certainly the Inflation Reduction Act, when we're talking about climate change, that was highly significant. It will help the United States achieve its goals of reducing its emissions by 50 to 52 percent from 2005. And it sent a message to other countries that the United States is serious about addressing its emissions problems, as well as continuing to lead other nations in addressing climate change. And it created a long time frame, a decade, for support for technology, industry, to come up with solutions, clean energy, and technology that will Keep us safer. So it was a monumental achievement for our country.
0: Yes. And I've talked about this, but it's obviously for us in the adaptation space, it's not our dream bill by any long shot, but it was still this really good news that came out of nowhere. And I kind of remember it just it seemed like when we heard it about Senator Manchin getting on board with it, that seemed like that was all that was needed, even though there was a lot more steps when that happened you just everybody kind of came alive so it was it was pretty exciting and I think most of us myself included really didn't understand what was in the bill for a long time you're kind of reading into those details and so but it was just a, a jolt of positive news in the climate space at least you know more so on the mitigation side
1: absolutely and uh, even uh, anyone who works in adaptation knows that we have to reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions in our atmosphere. So that is what this bill's primary focus is. And it's critical to adaptation success as well, because... If we lower emissions, we'll have less heating from this blanket of carbon and other greenhouse gases that is encasing the globe and heating us up. But if we are successful in reducing the thickness of that blanket, we will have less that we need to adapt to. So it's a, a definitely a win and for long-term adaptation as well.
0: All right. So we're going to pivot again here, but we'll follow the Inflation Reduction Act probably for years, even on this podcast, because it'll be relating to things. And so uh, watching it, even with the, if there's a turnover in administration, what does that mean? But it's something to watch in, in the years ahead. But Alice, I want to jump into some world events that have happened related to our adaptation resilience side. And in, in the area of national security, Pakistan just got s- smashed by flooding. And could you maybe give us a little bit of background, what's been happening there? What What happened?
1: Well, Pakistan is a country that is almost uniquely threatened by natural disasters. It's in the top 10 of nations that are face huge natural disaster risks, including earthquakes. But flooding is one of their big risks as well. And the monsoons came extremely. Extremely heavy this year, uh, caused about a third of the nation to be underwater, uh, significant damage to their agricultural sector. Uh, one of their regions, which was responsible for about half the food for the country, was very severely damaged, bridges washed out, and now population is suffering from waterborne diseases, gastrointestinal. It's also, there's little protection against mosquito-borne diseases. It's just a mountain of misery for a country that has had almost nothing to do with creating the climate change crisis that we currently have. Their emissions have been less than 1%, but uh, certainly the worsening of the monsoons, climate scientists, I believe, uh, have already indicated that those monsoons were worsened as a result of human-caused climate change. So we have uh, already a poor country its population, um, many millions thrown out of their homes by flooding, and a population in very desperate straits. It's predicted that there'll be food shortages, water shortages going forward. That has significant security risks, including for the United States, because populations that are suffering are grounds for recruitment for bad actors, including extremists, terrorists, and Pakistan already went down this road in 2010 after a very serious flooding. The Taliban used that moment and used the fact that the government was struggling to respond to expand its territory. And that is a risk here going forward. What will happen for the Pakistanis and their ability to keep their populations healthy and safe is a big question mark. Pakistan also has huge import for what occurs in November when the UN convenes its 27th Conference of Parties. Pakistan happens to be the head of the group of developing nations. I think it's called the G77. They are raising this issue of, hey, we have been damaged heavily by climate change. We've had little to do with it. Developed world, you need to pay up. You need to help us get to clean energy and you need to help us deal with these impacts. It's called, in UN speak, that's called loss and damage. But that issue will be, I believe... Highlighted at these convening in Egypt in November with the UN.
0: What's your sense? I mean, maybe the conversations that you, you you have with people, and even your time in the Obama administration, is that there's this immediate need to help people, and the Pakistan is trying to help their people, and there's rebuilding and the access to things like clean water. But does our military respond to these things even differently? In, in some ways, that flooding, and you, you don't necessarily look at it that way, but there's sort of it was like things that you have to the implications for the military are huge. And like you just described the national security implications for it. Does the Department of Defense now gear up in different ways? Because even though there's these immediate needs, it's like there are now real national security implications. It's almost it's a military operation or a national defense operation. I don't know if the CIA even thinks about these things. But do you feel like that shift has really occurred in the last 10 years?
1: We're in process. The United States has a proud history of being the number one provider of humanitarian assistance. And often it's the military that's the first arrives on the scene providing that assistance. As the number and intensity of extreme events grows, there are greater demands on the U.S. military, both Domestically, but also internationally to help people through these disasters. Some military leaders have expressed concern that this comes at the cost of operations. Actually, in Australia, this is a debate that's currently playing out. That if we are responding to these disasters, does it undercut our central mission, which is to provide uh, the military security, the defense forces for the nation? So there's a tension there already for the military. There's an additional concern for the military. Will its installations, its facilities, will its troops, will its weaponry perform under these new changing conditions? You might have recalled that Hurricane Michael basically wiped out one of the Air Force's primary bases, including a training base in Florida, Tyndall, Tyndall Air Force Base causing billions of dollars of damage. That base is currently being rebuilt. I don't know if it's in the line of fire for Hurricane Ian, which is currently approaching Florida, but the Air Force hadn't planned to have to rebuild to the tune of $5 billion, which they're doing. Then you multiply that for all the installations across the globe of the United States military, which is the largest, most powerful military in the world, We have a huge bill coming due to make sure that we have the readiness of our forces and everything that supports them. And then you have the third issue of what does this mean for global relations and security among nations and between nations? And that's where Pakistan comes in. If Pakistan, the Pakistani government cannot feed its population, we could have young people who don't have work, who are hungry, being recruited by extremists. And that could affect our nation right here within our borders. There are geopolitical hotspots that may develop as a result of climate crises, drought, people on the move as a result of not being able to have water, devastation of crops, famine. All of those are highly destabilizing and could have spillover effects for nations across the globe, including the United States.
0: So I want to pivot again here and so much is going on right now. And I want to talk about Puerto Rico. And they are just dealing with this right now, even though Hurricane Fiona has gone through, we're just seeing more news stories come out on how that impacted the island actually a lot of great coverage in regards to like previous work that FEMA has done in the area but uh, can you just give us an update like what, what happened there with, with Fiona
1: well Fiona hit Puerto Rico and once again the territory plunged into darkness of course in 2017 after hurricanes Irma and Maria Puerto Rico suffered the longest blackout in United States history and the second longest in global history. Wow. So that had significant negative ramifications for its business community. Americans discovered that Puerto Rico happened to be a center for the manufacture of basic medical supplies like those bags that are used for infusion of chemotherapy or blood and when power went out even though Puerto Rico had backup generators just People couldn't get to work. And the price of those bags skyrocketed by 600%. Fast forward five years later, the grid goes down again, revealing that the grid really isn't. Climate resilient. It's also revealed that a lot of the money that we, the United States, had allocated to Puerto Rico to be spent from its recovery from the hurricanes in 2017 hasn't yet been spent. And so there is still a huge amount of work ahead. There's a lot of finger pointing going on right now as to who's responsible for the weak conditions that have been revealed by this Hurricane Fiona. There are a couple of bright spots. We've seen that areas that had decentralized solar, there were lights were on in some places. So we can learn from that, that as we think ahead about what kind of grid Puerto Rico needs to have in place, there are lessons already revealed from Fiona. It is going to be another long slog for Puerto Ricans. One of the dangers, I think, for the region is that there might be a brain drain. And we have seen that with after Hurricane Economic conditions tend to decline, and those who can may choose to leave to find a better life elsewhere, which for them, that, that's the right choice. But long term for Puerto Rico, that just is a loss of human capital that also is a price they're paying.
0: All right, I want to I want to dig into this a bit because it, it was just great timing actually. Washington Post put out an article today. I, in I, did you read this about the mitigation projects in Puerto Rico? It was just in, just in today's Washington Post. Did you happen to read that?
1: No, I haven't seen it.
0: It'd be very interesting for you. But things that you just touched upon in that since Hurricane Maria in 2017, that there was serious money allocated for Puerto Rico. And they're talking the projects there. I think there's something like 74 projects that have been submitted to get funded. And only seven have just been allocated completely. And that they're actually working on these in various stages of all these things. And it's what's that's been five years. And it just got me thinking too. And you talked about this originally in your book. We, we talk about how government entities really need to communicate better, but uh, there really hasn't been a lot of talk about just how bureaucracies can inhibit adaptation. And I don't think we in the adaptation space, we just assume enough, well, if we fund these things or if we get the right personnel, and then we just sometimes forget that bureaucracies and the nature of how they even interact with each other is actually a serious hindrance to adaptation.
1: Well, I agree that varying requirements can slow down, but I don't think we want to say that all so-called red tape doesn't make sense. Sometimes red tape prevents fraud. Sometimes red tape makes sure that we're actually doing something in a climate resilient way rather than just building it. So there is a balance. I think one of the challenges when you step back with adaptation overall is that A lot of this money is flowing through the federal government. The federal government reflects its history. We have the Department of Defense formed after World War II. We have Department of Homeland Security formed after 9-11. And then we have Housing and Urban Development. Each of these, uh, Department of Interior, each of these agencies have their own history, their own mission set and their own legislation defining what they can and cannot do. And when they're focused on their own mission set, they can generally, in my opinion, often deliver in very significant ways. But when you get a cross-cutting threat or risk, like climate change, and climate change is unfamiliar because conditions are different from what we have historically seen, In the past, we could rely on what had occurred in the past to make us safe for the future, but the past is no longer a good guide when you have sea level rise, storms intensifying very rapidly, more rain falling than ever historically seen. So we have something that's affecting every single agency we have, and it affects each of their mission spaces, but what it's also is revealing is that there are huge gaps in what these agencies are authorized to do. And because they are gaps, it leaves us ill-prepared to respond in the kind of robust way that we need to respond. And short of creating new a new agency to deal with climate change, at a minimum, we need to have a better plan how all these agencies will work together so that they're more coordinated, so that The customer, which would be a Puerto Rico or some community in Puerto Rico, can easily access the range of programs that are offered by all these different agencies. I was recently on a panel with a mayor from a town in the Midwest who said after a disaster, he had to deal with 25 different agencies. That is just Impossible for a small town mayor who doesn't have a planning staff or the resources to be chasing down 25 different agencies.
0: Well, in in defense of agencies like FEMA, and I work for the National Park Service at the national level. And just even when you're giving grants, part of this is the expertise. And I think this keeps coming up is people that just have no exposure, even thinking about adaptation planning, vulnerability assessments. And so if you're a grant and it's associated with like maybe rebuilding some infrastructure, but... Going forward, it needs to factor in sea level rise. It really needs to consider climate change, and a lot of these smaller communities just don't have the staff. We think they do, but they don't. And so, even to get be eligible for the grants, they have to demonstrate that they're going to start planning this way. And so FEMA is just ready to give these funds, but you know they're required to say, "All right," but these are going to be you know, fo-. and I'm, I'm just using FEMA as an example. It could be at the state, going down to the city level, but that. I guess that level of professional experience to do this work, it's still way off. Even if the money's there, the expertise to actually to implement in the right way is a big problem. I think
1: a huge problem. I think you're absolutely right. What we've seen is an arms race among consultancies and modeling firms to try to aid different communities, but that's mostly the wealthy communities. That's a California or a New York that can afford to hire, but a small town isn't going to be able to afford, and they probably don't have the expertise on their own staff, so they are left struggling. And we really don't have a website or a set of consultants in the federal government that makes it simple for a smaller community to figure out how to access the tremendous resources of the federal government. The Government Accountability Office recently reiterated that the federal government needs to get to a better data platform that makes it easier for people to understand their risks. And I believe it was in the Inflation Reduction Act, there also was a proposal for some kind of climate core, a cadre of people who could assist for essentially help a local community or city, town, figure out what their risks are, and then figure out what the programs are available that could assist them. That Bridging that gap would be a giant leap forward for the United States because then there would be a common understanding among agencies as to what the risks are for this community, city, state, and then a a way of identifying what programs will address the threats that are making this community, city, state vulnerable. It's a gap that we desperately need to close. There's another gap, though, that we have. And that is the federal workforce. We, as we've been talking about, we have millions, billions of dollars that is about to be spent. Do we have the federal workforce that is trained on these issues? I suspect not simply because most people haven't had a chance to have any formal education on climate change. We just don't have a cadre of people who understand the threats and what they will mean going forward for industries, for communities, and for the economic health of the nation.
0: You know, it just reminded me in a previous life, I did land conservation and we're, you know, NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act, uh, the local governments have to do these environmental assessments for basically everything. And I would hate for that to happen to the adaptations planning space is that, you know, not to knock all consultants, because great some consultants out there doing some great work, but a lot of those cities would just hire these consultants, do this environmental assessment, tick off these boxes. And for people in the conservation space, you're like, wait a sec, you weren't really considering water in the right way. You and they did enough to get that assessment, you know, ticked off as part of NEPA. Adaptation planning could easily go in that same direction as smaller communities are just like, listen, we just don't have the capacity to do, oh, look at this future mapping and all this sort of expertise and they don't realize maybe other resources. Anyway, it occurred to me like when those environmental assessments, that's just a lot of going through the motions there and that could happen to adaptation.
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I I very much like the idea of having a cadre of consulting services that are available to the less well-off, less resourced communities who need help. And without that, they are at greater risk of being left behind or, as you say, checking the box and hoping that what they say passes with the agencies, even if they don't really fully understand what's at stake.
0: And I just want to acknowledge your point about fraud. And I totally agree. Did you saw that story with all they just busted with COVID money, all the, this tons of money that there was this fraud in regards, I think, using COVID money for some children related like food? Or I, I forgot exactly all the details, but it was a massive fraud it was, case. Yeah.
1: Right. Including prisoners (laughs) getting money. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. And so my point is there's pots of adaptation money out there. And if there's pots of future money and even the infrastructure bill, there's a lot of that supposed to go toward. uh, We don't want that happening in the adaptation space where we we have people committing fraud saying, oh, yeah, we did climate adaptation here. And (laughs) it's going to be hard to avoid when you have big pots like that. But yeah, I, I agree that we need to be looking out for corruption and fraud. And of course, bureaucracies hopefully help prevent that. But I, I think that's coming and the adaptation space needs to be ready for that because it could just give a real black eye to a very emerging area.
1: Well, it's a risk. And when you have a lot of money to give away and pressure to give it away, we see see that
0: with the reporting on
1: how much fraud was revealed during the COVID payouts that people could easily claim one thing, if not another you know, my prior life, before I was a judge, I was a an assistant United States attorney. I was prosecutor. I headed the fraud unit in Los Angeles. I know that fraud occurs and detecting it can be extremely difficult. So it is wise for the federal government to be aware of that risk. Because once the money's gone, it's often—I know as a prosecutor—very hard to get the money back. You might be able to prosecute the person, and they might go to prison, but the money's gone.
0: Quickly, just my own experience working for the federal government and just dealing with how the government deals with fraud. You know, you, when you're travel, you got to account for your receipts and everything. And then did some travel for the National Park Service, and I was called by some accounting part of the the agency because. There was a discrepancy in a coffee. It was like four bucks or something. And so I just I had to explain it. It was a pleasant conversation. I'm not knocking her. She was, she did her job and it was great. But I was just mentally I was thinking, All right, I'm getting paid X amount an hour. She's getting paid X amount an hour. And just to track down this four dollar piece of fraud and just like this <laughs> this is not good. Yes. And this is its own fraud in its own way. But again, you you hear about these all these big fraud things that happen and you gotta keep on people. So
1: Right. It's a balance between common sense. And then how do we make sure that we're just not pouring money out the door that we'll never get back?
0: Okay, we're gonna do another pivot here. There's a report out from the Government Accountability Office about climate change and resilience right up both our alleys. And I actually hadn't dug around much into it. I, it was out there, but it just for some reason, I let it go and a lot of really good stuff in there. And I, I wanted to just ask you a few questions about that, because I, I do think it serves as sort of a, a ground truthing what the government is doing on these things. And there are some recommendations in there. Let's talk about that for a little bit.
1: Sure. I actually worked a lot with the GAO when I was at the Department of Homeland Security. The GAO had investigated the department for a huge number of things. And when I arrived, there were so many backlog recommendations that uh, one of the projects I took on, in addition to climate change adaptation, was trying to work with the GAO to resolve those recommendations so that the department could move forward. And I had a chance to understand how they approach things. And then I began to work with them uh, on issues about climate change. And they have been one of the earliest advocates for action on climate change by the federal government of all agencies since at least 2013. They have put the federal government... A very wealthy entity. Uh, the high risk list for the government accountability office, which is the watchdog for the federal government. They're, they're making sure they're supposed to make sure the federal government's doing what it should be doing. And they said, look, climate change impacts are a high risk for us. Economic impacts. We have agricultural insurance and agriculture certainly will be threatened. So all that insurance we pay up there, we have the The federal government has the flood insurance program, which is deeply threatened by climate change. And then we just have these massive growth in billion dollar events. And we simply aren't doing enough. So they have been really... clamoring and urging and pushing the federal government to do more. And I think they are one of the most insightful groups out there as to ideas for how the federal government could do a better job.
0: I just want to read a little bit from the report. I'm very high level. And for folks who want to dig around that, I'll have a link in my show notes to the report, but it's called Climate Change Enhancing Federal Resilience. And they say, we identified five areas in which government-wide action is needed to reduce federal fiscal exposure to climate change. These areas include the federal government's roles as one, insurer of property and crops, as you just mentioned, two, provider of disaster aid, three, owner or operator of infrastructure, four, leader of a strategic plan to coordinate federal efforts, and five, provider of data and technical assistance to decision makers. And just your initial reaction, I mean, it seems like you're impressed with the work they're doing, but do you think that's a, a nice kind of summary? Those five approaches are really a good way to kind of cover most of the areas?
1: Yeah, I think they have identified the big areas that are out there. Are there more? Of course, because this is a never ending iterative process, but we need to start with the highest priority. I think they've also called out the need for the federal government to prioritize where chooses to make investments. What we do now is a little like sprinkles on a cupcake, and you just sprinkle them all over in place. But what we really need to do is make sure that the sprinkles are occurring in the places that are at greatest risk, because if we spread it out very thinly, we don't have the kinds of investments that will truly keep certain areas safer. Very difficult politically to make those choices, but if we don't aren't willing to say, no, we're going to make an investment in building something to hold back the sea in this area and not do something on a smaller scale here. If we're unwilling to do that, we could end up with a lot of this money being spent, but not achieving the kind of long term resilience for the nation that we need.
0: Okay. So let's look at that number four. And this is a conversation that's happening. I did a whole episode on it. The, you know, a strategic plan to coordinate federal efforts. And I read that as like a national adaptation plan and strategy. And currently in Congress, it's a bipartisan bill to, to, to do that. Do you, have you heard anything? Any sort of, I, I had some math medlock on it. She gave me her own update, but what's your sense of that and the sort of the, the need for such a thing?
1: Well, I've spoken and written publicly about it. In fact, I spoke at an event sponsored by one of the sponsors, Senator Chris Coons, in favor of the bill. We desperately need a national strategy for adaptation. And What does the strategy get us? It gets us, first of all, a understanding of what the federal government's goals are with regard to adaptation so that state, local, tribal, territorial governments and the private sector can understand what the federal government believes it will do. And then they can figure out, those other entities can figure out how they nest within whatever the federal government's goals. It also can set metrics for what does adaptation success look like. It can help with this prioritization issue, making sure that we are thinking through what it, where it makes sense uh, to spend money. And it can, in an iterative process, work from the bottom up and the top down to get at some of the harder issues that we are, will be facing, such as relocation of populations as land disappears. So the idea of a national adaptation plan is not new. Planning is not viewed as particularly sexy. But without a plan, what we get is some a lot of confusion. And right now we have President Biden has ordered each agency to do their own individual uh, adaptation plan for their agencies. But when those plans at the end of the day are unlikely to add up uh, to and I think uh, Jesse Keenan did a really wonderful job on your program, uh, showing that they won't add up at the end of the day to an integrated approach. So we need a national adaptation plan. I would point out that we're a bit of an outlier at this point in not having one. China issued its first in 2013, and it just issued, reissued a new version calling for it to be a climate resilient nation by 2035. And it has some very ambitious climate resilient programs that it calls for, including shipping large amounts of water from an area that has a lot of fresh water to drier areas. So really a lot of ambition from China as to how it will be resilient. And then we see France, Germany, the EU, Japan, Russia, all having their own plans. Now, they could be of varying strengths, uh, but the fact is they've gone through the process of doing it. And one of the nations that engaged in this uh, very early stage, the Netherlands, has had some remarkable Success in implementing some of the choices it has made with regard to strengthening it to its major threat, which is sea level rise.
0: Well, it would be good because if we had a national adaptation plan, it's just another way to interface with the international community, create some common language and approaches. And you know, the U.S. doesn't always play nice on the international stage, and so I'm, I'm hopeful and. I guess my concern is that from the legislation that I know, and I had the the author of the bill come on and kind of walk us through it, support everything about it. But you know how sometimes you have a national thing, but even the federal agencies are not playing nice with each other. And I get, again, it's supposed to help coordinate that. But when you don't have a budget associated with it, like all these other parts that GAO just said, provider of disaster aid, those are big things. And, you know, then, then, then like how they integrate with just a, a small office doing a national adaptation strategy Oh, that's tricky. You really need, I guess, even at the presidency level of saying, all right, you guys are going to really make this work together or it'll be a missed opportunity. So
1: they will need leadership, no doubt about it. And probably a person with the president's ear. We have an interesting development right now, which I think is a very exciting development. President Biden has brought back John Podesta to head up efforts under the Inflation Reduction Act. I had the honor of working with John Podesta when I was in the White House. I think he is widely recognized that he is a very, very productive and talented leader, one of the best if not the best in the federal government, he knows the levers to pull and he knows how to get things done. So I even at one point wrote a little article about climate work before John Podesta in the White House and after John Podesta, because I happened to arrive a couple of months in the White House before he arrived. Wow. And then when he got there, you could tell the difference. Wow. And I'm sure that's happening right now. Uh, that is a wonderful development, I think, uh, for the success of that bill.
0: I guess the final thought in regarding the National Adaptation Strategy, which, again, I support, I I, I promoted it on this podcast numerous times, is, you know, the National Climate Assessment is a congressionally mandated thing. Great resource. The science going into that is amazing. It's there. When I worked out in the states and even the local level, it's just it wasn't really being used. And I don't know if this is a communication issue, but I would hate for something like that, similar to happen in the adaptation space, because- So much effort, so much, you know, resources that go into the national climate assessment. And it just, people don't know necessarily how to interface with it. And that, that's a lost opportunity. And so, like, again, maybe there's some consistency. And and there's, I forgot the name of it, but for this number five provider of data, there's a new portal that they just announced. I don't know if you know the name. You know what I'm talking about? It has that map and there's.
1: Uh, I I do not recall the name, but I've been on it, but it it does suffer a little bit from challenges of earlier versions, it's difficult to navigate. And mm-hmm. then if you really just want to get down to your property level, it can be difficult. It's sometimes just county-wide information. And if you're in a really large county or a very varied county, that might not be as relevant to you. It is still a ways to go. I would say that And I I don't know what modeling they're using. I haven't been a part of it. But the First Street Foundation has really leapt into the creation of uh, future information about risks to particular properties. So you can go on to their website, type in your address, or the, I think it's Redfin that also carries their information. It'll show the flood score, the wildfire threat, et cetera. I don't know about the underlying modeling, but that is the goal that we would hope we would have for the entire nation that, that is credible information. And I have no reason to believe it's not credible, but it's not a government source. It's from a private entity.
0: Okay. That's, that's just not encouraging. I haven't poked around at the resource like that. And that again, you're at a local government level and you, you know, it's just not meeting your needs. You're going to instantly, even if you've ever been exposed to it, you're you're not going to use it. And it's going to be a missed opportunity of creating more integration across. So hopefully again, and, and as, I'm sure as you're following and you probably get invited to speak one of probably the few really profitable areas in the adaptation space that has come out relatively early is just, you know, climate data, climate modeling and such. And there's these private firms and startups that are coming up, which is exciting in its own space. But if we have 50 of these, hundred of these different firms all providing different modeling, different data for communities and the private sector that could itself create all sorts of problems and their information might be reliable how they created their model, but it's a bit of the Wild West, when I think it's coming to climate data at the moment.
1: The modeling is a big challenge, absolutely. And over the years, I've gotten to know a lot more about modeling. And there are just some risks, including a you know, modeler gets very attached to the way they see things. So that could undermine the results from the model. And then there's also the risk that we follow the models too closely. It's kind of like when you're looking at Google Maps and you drive into the lake. Right. Um, you just have assumed that this is accurate. It's a remarkably challenging problem to project future events. Uh, we are certain that the events uh, will occur, but there is uncertainty about how and when they will occur. And trying to project that is just a remarkably challenging task that adds to the difficulties that governments, private sector, and individuals are having to adjust to a future uh, in an unstable climate. But we need to figure out the ways, what's trustworthy, what's not trustworthy, and most important thing is to embark on it, because we've been talking about these hurricanes. The big risk is right after everything dies down, people are accounted for there'll be a push to build back. We need to build back communities that are resilient to the events of the future, not just what they've just been through. And that is an enormous task.
0: Okay, Alice, one final pivot here and you get asked to speak a lot and you know virtual speaking has been a thing for the last couple of years and even from the last time you you went on and I I just want to get your advice and pick your brain a little bit on your speaking. Like who are some of the groups that you've been speaking to? So you get, I mean, you are just one of the leaders in this space. And so obviously you get asked to be on panels, you get asked to do keynotes. What, what have, have been some of those, I guess, even the last three to six months that have, that you've been doing?
1: Well, I very much enjoy speaking. I speak to everyone from uh, groups of students. I'd love to be invited to be a guest lecturer of students of various disciplines because I always learn from them. But I also speak to groups who have particular expertise, it might be financial companies. It, sometimes I'm speaking to groups of scientists. It's Really wide ranging. One of the delightful things about being on the Council on Foreign Relations is how much international speaking. And of course that you can do this with a peering virtually is really a gift. So I speak to audiences ranging from the Asia, the Sp- to an audience recently in Singapore, looking at the energy transition, the Middle East, Europe, and interacting with a variety of audiences. There's typical questions, allows me to get at least a sense of, um, and a very anecdotal sense, of what is occurring and what the thought processes are. A couple of takeaways is that we are still at the very beginning of this journey. Resilience is still the poor cousin to mitigation, and there isn't quite the appreciation yet of the fact that mitigation and adaptation now have to go hand in hand. Although 2022 has certainly been an eye-opener for many because of the variety and the velocity and the volume of these events that we've seen shows that climate change has very much arrived and is already causing severe damage and more is ahead.
0: These groups that aren't necessarily in the adaptation space, maybe not even at all related, but they're just curious to learn more. That's why they've invited you on. They know that you have a reputation. This Anything that kind of stands out to you that is curious to you that you're like, oh, these type of questions or they might have just completely missed conceptions on even what it is like anything kind of stand out to you in that regard
1: one of the biggest things is the different levels of understanding of climate change i think that we have a phenomenon where there are people are leaders simply haven't had a chance to study climate change and one of the scary or, or concerning aspects of that was brought to light to me by somebody at CFR who observed that in her interactions on climate change, she noticed that people often fell silent. And she didn't think it was because they weren't worried about climate change. They were worried about embarrassing themselves because they didn't know that much about climate change and we see statements we saw the president of the world bank last week asked about the consensus on that humans have caused climate change and this is a consensus agreed to by scientists across the globe the un all nations have agreed to that consensus and his response was i'm not a climate scientist ah, uh that was pretty surprising and then in 2019 New York University Stern Business School did a study of I think it was the top Fortune 100 companies these are you know publicly traded companies and they looked at the resumes of some 1200 different board members of those companies and it was they could only find a handful of resumes that had any mention of environment so you have a lot of leaders being asked to make decisions about climate change. And odds are, given their age and what was available uh, in institutions of higher education about climate change at the time they were educated, odds are they didn't have a chance to get educated. So you saw the... World Bank president, after there was a huge outcry about his response to this question, he said, well, I'm happy to be educated by the scientists. And that response, that's great. He wants to be educated, but he's running an organization already that is responsible for assisting the developing world with its challenges. And climate change is certainly at the very top of the list of those challenges. I would say that has been a consistent takeaway for me that The work is still here, and this is really true in the United States. I think that we have more skepticism about climate change than you have in many other parts of the world.
0: Yeah, it's going to take decades to flush that out. It's just people you hang out in the climate orbit. You're like, oh, everybody knows about the you know, you know, even people that don't aren't hostile to what you do. They don't even have an introductory level of knowledge of some of these things. It's just going to take a lot of effort. And hopefully, you know, like a national adaptation plan, hopefully like awareness building would be a big part of what they expect the U.S. to do. So,
1: I think that's an excellent point because just the planning process will educate anyone who's involved in that. And that is what we need is we need the engagement and the opportunity for people to learn through that engagement to understand what's at stake.
0: And that's what I suggested to the the author of the the bill was like, it needs national communication strategy is sort of a subplot of all that. Just that's all I'm that's very important to me. Excellent
1: suggestion.
0: (laughs) There's a lot of my listeners out there that are talking to people and just even explaining resilience and adaptation. Still a struggle. Any advice to them? It be at the local level, be at the state level to insight to how they might be able to speak to the topic, to the people that they're talking to.
1: Well, I don't want to sound too flip, but over the years, there's two things I've gotten. First, kiss, keep it simple, keep it stupid. I I don't mean (laughs) stupid, but you need to explain that we have this blanket of emissions that are covering our globe. So never assume that people really know what greenhouse gas emissions are. And the second is try to tell stories. And that was chaired by uh, Fran Olmer, who has worked in the Arctic for a long time and um, decades. And she, I was on a panel with her and she was asked, uh, as you look back on this, what do you wish you'd done in terms of communicating why we should care about the Arctic? And she said, tell more stories. And I thought that was excellent advice. It's sometimes there's a tendency, I have a tendency, you get kind of in the wonky, the policy, but really ultimately it's about Stories that people care about. And if we can find stories that resonate, we can help people understand this challenge and make better choices. All
0: right, Alice, we're going to wrap this up here. And this is a question I ask all my guests, and you've answered this before. And it's been a while since you've been on. So you've, I'm sure you've met a lot of people. But if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be?
1: Johan Rockstrom. He's not a necessarily an adaptation expert, but he is a scientist who can communicate what's ahead for the globe in a way that I found very accessible, but also very inspiring. And he moves beyond just the focus on climate change, but to the focus on other factors that will be influenced by climate change that could affect the overall health of the globe and the planet as we know it. And I think it's useful to step back occasionally. And I focus so much on climate change, but also to try to understand what other forces are at play, like the stress on ecosystems that could be a risk to achieving the kind of life that we want to have here on the globe.
0: Okay. I'm sorry. You probably said it, but who's he with? And like, where's he based?
1: Oh, he's based in Sweden, I think now. I think he's at the Potsdam Institute. His name is Johan Rockström. When I was at the White House, I invited him to speak. I was so impressed with his work. I'd seen him speak elsewhere. He is just remarkably articulate about how the planet works and what we need, the different areas we need to keep a close watch on to keep ourselves safe.
0: Sounds like an excellent recommendation. I don't think I've had anyone based in Sweden come on before, so I need to do a little homework. Alice, always a treat to have you on. Open invitation. I'll be checking back in with you. There's other topics, things. I'm sure you're going to be busy in the next six months, 12 months, and we'll always have you back on America Daps to talk about these things, but thanks for coming on.
1: Well, thank you for having me. What a pleasure. And I so enjoy your podcast. I really always learn something when I listen. So thank you for your work.
0: Okay, Adapters, that is wrap. Thanks to Judge Alice Hill for joining the podcast. Alice has been on many times and it's always a treat to chat with her and get her views on the adaptation issues of the day. She's one of our sector's leading voices and certainly a mentor to many of us. I especially enjoyed our conversation on the challenges of federal agencies to provide funding. Even if funding is available, it's not always easy to distribute. That level of expertise varies at local, state, and federal levels and funding agencies need to be responsible with dispersing this aid. That said, we can't wait until there is some baseline level of adaptation awareness to make our communities more resilient. Many groups, especially at the local level, are going to have to step up their educational efforts to let their relevant staffers know of the funding and climate data that is available to help them plan. I'll be talking with a future guest about the reliability of climate data and why that's such a frustrating part of planning for people in adaptation. Thanks again, Alice, for joining the podcast. So it looks like I'm going to the National Adaptation Forum in Baltimore this year. It's been a while since I've been to a conference. I'm on assignment for this episode. In previous forums, I've been able to connect with listeners. I love meeting people in person, chance to chat about the work that you do. If you're planning to go, feel free to reach out in advance. I'll be on the lookout for you when I'm there. Maybe you're on a presentation panel. Let me know. I'll try to check it out. Also reminder, check out the show notes for the Patel Innovations in Climate Resilience Conference in Columbus, Ohio, March 28th through 30th. Submit in abstract. You'll hear more from me about this conference. In the coming months. Okay, folks, you hear me talk about this all the time. What's your adaptation story? I'm about to go to Mexico to tell WWF's mangrove adaptation story we're going to tell batel's adaptation story at their conference so do people that you engage with understand what is climate adaptation are you finding that webinars and white papers really aren't resonating in ways that promote your work well consider telling your story in a podcast sponsoring podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world and as i said i go on location for these sponsored podcasts increasingly so post covid and this allows you a different diversity of guests to come on you will work with me to identify experts that represent the amazing work that you're doing. I've mentioned that WWF has been a previous sponsor. Well, I've worked with NRDC, University of Pennsylvania, Wharton, Harvard, UCLA, many groups really wanting to tell their adaptation story. Why don't you? It's a chance to share your story with my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. And I like to point this out. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budging in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life. They're are much more interesting than these white papers or conference presentations. That's my humble opinion. And those are worked into many communication strategies. There's no better platform than this podcast to get the word out on adaptation to some of the most influential and active adaptation professionals in the world. And if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, Folks, I do keynote presentations. I love doing them. This is an emerging issue. A lot of people, especially in the private sector, don't understand what's coming, don't understand their role in adaptation. I give keynote presentations around the subject, talk about my previous guests, my previous life doing adaptation policy. You can learn more at americadaps.org. And don't forget, I love hearing from you guys. I mean it. Just say hi. Tell me what you do for a living. Seriously, it's the highlight of my week. I'm at at gmail.com. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.